baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. And welcome to In-Depth. I'm KCBS political reporter Doug Sovereign. And today on a special pre-election edition of In-Depth, we'll chat with the four candidates for state superintendent of public instruction. One of these people will be in charge of California's schools, succeeding Tom Torlakson, who by law cannot run for another term. It's a nonpartisan office, so if one of the four exceeds 50% in the June 5th primary, he or she will win. Otherwise, the top two go on to November. We begin with a man who ran and lost to Torlakson four years ago, Marshall Tuck. So you're running again. You ran four years ago. What have you been doing the last four years that makes you more qualified or, or more ready for this job? Yeah, I think two big things. You know, one is uh, my job. I worked as an educator in residence at a group called the New Teacher Center. And the New Teacher Center is a nonprofit. Uh, started out of Santa Cruz, actually, um, by a wonderful educator, Ellen Moore, and works with school districts all over the state and the country on how do you put in place really strong programs for coaching and mentoring teachers and principals, which are the most important thing in our schools. You know, I've worked in education for 15 years. I've led two different school systems, and um, there's there's nothing more important than supporting our teachers and our principals. So that work really, I think, helps me think about how do I run a California Department of Education more effectively? How do we go deeper on supporting our teachers and principals? And then secondly, uh, I have a six-year-old son, and so uh, I now, the last two years, have been... um, a parent in a public school. And so, you know, I was mentioning briefly earlier, um, I've worked in education for a long time, mostly in, in highest poverty areas, leading school systems. But now as a parent, you get another perspective, you know, with my child and, and making sure that what's the school that I want to make sure makes the most sense for him and for all kids. So that, that does, I think, make me a little better in this job with a parent perspective in addition to the education experience. You have a background working in charter schools and then within the L.A. school district. Uh, why did you, how did you make the choice to send your son to public school as opposed to a charter? You know, I, I think like most parents uh, who are fortunate enough to have options, we live in uh, Mar Vista in, in Los Angeles and there's three uh, district public schools within a mile of our house and there's also a couple of charter schools and we, we looked around and tried to find the school that made the most sense for my son. And so Beethoven Elementary, which is a school we chose to send him to, is a district public school and it was a smaller school. It had a, a really welcoming environment and we wanted to go to a local public school. My son's an only son, uh, only child, and, and want to be a part of a school community, which I think when your local public school uh, is a good school, that's the natural choice most people go to. You know, I worked in charter schools uh, about a decade ago, but I was in Inglewood and Watts in, in South LA where a lot of our parents did not have a good public school option in their neighborhood. And so they chose a different kind of public school, um, which was a charter school. And, and I think that most parents would like to go to their neighborhood school, but we as a state aren't providing a great public school for all kids. You know, as you and I are talking right now, there's 6.2 million kids going to public schools in California and over 3 million can't read and write at grade level. Over 3 million. And, and that is a crisis, especially when you think about 21st century economy, most competitive economy in the history of humankind. Those kids, their shot at a future is taken away from them before it even begins, and, and we need real change. So I was lucky enough to have a really strong school in, in our neighborhood, and that's where my son goes. But a significant number of kids in the state don't have that opportunity, and that's what I want to be a part of changing. 
All right. So how are you going to do that? And, and, and what can the superintendent really do to, to fix that and turn it around? Yeah. So I think step one is our state, you know, both the state superintendent and, and the governor and, and I think all citizens in the state. I'm a lifetime California. We have to make public education the top priority. You know, our state has not prioritized public schools for decades. We, you know, we're sitting right now in the Bay Area. We're the home of the Silicon Valley, the technology capital of the world. And our fourth graders in public schools in California rank dead last naturally, uh, nationally in science performance. So we've created Apple and Google and Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but we can't teach our kids science. So we, we've got to step one, prioritize our schools. Step two is we got to invest in our teachers and principals. As I mentioned earlier, I've led two different school systems that both delivered strong results for our kids in Los Angeles. And the foundation of the work was, how do we invest in our teachers and principals? Over time, we have to pay teachers more. You know, two teachers married in their 30s can't really buy a house in the Bay Area, right? That's not sustainable for this profession. I want to right away move towards free college if you commit to teach for five years or more to try to get more people to come into the profession. And then over time, we got to change that. And then secondly, we need to give our educators a lot more flexibility. So California has this book called the California Education Code. It's literally 2,500 pages. It's like six-point fun. It's just full of rules and regulation that creates tons of bureaucracy, and it takes innovation out of our public schools. It takes creativity out of the hands of our teachers and our principals. And so I want to work as state superintendent to give our district schools much more flexibility so that we can have local communities, educators locally, doing what makes the most sense for the kids in their classroom, rather than oftentimes, you know, bureaucrats in Sacramento or elsewhere making the decisions. And and the state superintendent can't make all the changes, um, but this is a top education official in the state that has real authority to make progress on giving schools more flexibility, to make progress on ensuring that we're sharing the most effective practices for supporting our teachers and our principals. So California schools, you know, 40 years ago were the, were the envy of the nation and, and the world, and then Prop 13 happened, so the funding was cut. Uh, is it just money, though? I mean, I mean if, if we, how much would we need to increase the funding to, to bring it back to where they were, or is there a lot more to it than that? Yeah, it's, it's not just money. You know, I, I remind folks, so one of the groups I led in, in, in education was the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools in LA, which was focused on turning around the lowest 5% schools in Los Angeles. And just to give you a sense of it, when I say lowest 5%, Santee High School, which we started working with in 2008, had 3,500 students at the school, and only 35 were grade level in math. 35 out of 3,500. That's what we've allowed to have happen. And so we launched that during the Great Recession. So we were able to make a lot of changes and improvements um, in spite of not having substantially more dollars. Now, we definitely need more money, and we'll talk about that. But there's other decisions in terms of, are you putting money into classrooms and with teachers rather than into bureaucracy? Are you giving educators more flexibility to do their work? Are you getting parents more involved? Those are things that we did in our schools. And you can do some of those things without additional resources. And, and the end result is, you know, we had a, our schools had a 36% graduation rate when we first started working there in 2008. And today, the schools have an 81% percent graduation rate and have had real success. So we can do more without dollars, but we should be very clear in this state. We do need more money. And and, and I remind people, because people talk about Prop 13 all the time, that was 1978. And the question we all have to ask ourselves is, how is it possible that for four decades, our elected leaders in Sacramento have not addressed that situation? You know, how is it possible that the wealthiest state in the nation with so many phenomenal kids and so many hardworking educators has some of the lowest performing public schools? 
I really believe it's possible because our elected officials in Sacramento have not gotten the job done on public education, and we need real change because the status quo is not working, and our campaign's all about real change for our kids. That's Marshall Tuck. Next in our interviews with the candidates for California Superintendent of Public Instruction, State Assemblyman Tony Thurmond, who represents the 15th District in the East Bay, but he's giving up that seat to run for schools chief instead. Well, you know, I'm running for state superintendent because uh, fundamentally I believe that every single student can achieve uh, regardless of his or her circumstances. And, and this is, uh, you know, a belief that has been sort of my personal narrative. Um, you know, for me, you know, uh, education has been a great equalizer that has helped me overcome very humble beginnings. Uh, you know, I was born in the Bay Area. Uh, my mom was an immigrant who came here from Panama as a teacher in San Jose. My dad was a soldier um, who came here from Detroit and served in Vietnam. And long story short, my dad, you know, um, left our family during Vietnam and never returned. My mom raised four kids by herself until she could not. And she was sick with cancer. And when I was sick, she passed away. And I went to live with a cousin who I never met in Philadelphia who raised me as her son and made sure I got a great education. And my life could have ended in a different direction. Instead, you know, I, I probably could have ended up in California State Prison, I ended up in the California State Assembly. It's because of education. My cousin, um, you know, I became a social worker for 20 years helping kids. I spent 12 years working in schools. This year I taught a high school class of kids who are in the juvenile camp. I run after-school programs. I've helped foster year. Um, I, I, you know, because I believe deeply that we can change the school-to-prison pipeline, I've introduced a bill that taxes private prisons to generate revenue for preschool and after-school programs, because those are programs that we know keep kids out of the criminal justice system. Uh, long story short, public education has made the difference for me in my life, um, and I am devoting my career to helping young people, and I believe that public education uh, needs support, and needs a boost, um, and I've been able to get things done, you know, as a school board member, reducing uh, our dropout rate, increasing our graduation rates, and um, helping students in our district to improve their test scores. You know, as a legislator, been able to give millions of dollars to our schools through the legislation that I passed and to help create a guaranteed scholarship for kids coming out of foster care to improve the free lunch program for 400,000 kids to help make the first-year community college free to help provide almost a half a billion dollars for early education. All that to say, I've been working on education. We've had some success. I think that there's more that needs to be done. We've got to make sure our kids are ready for the jobs of tomorrow, we have to do more STEM. And, you know, I've got a bill this year that will expand our STEM and computer science offerings um, and give $200 million to expand STEM. I have a bill that expands career technical education so that kids get vocational education and they get internships and they learn about college and career pathways. We have a huge teacher shortage. Um, and I've introduced a teacher housing bill to help teachers who can't afford to live where they work. And, uh, and I'm offering a scholarship to anyone who wants to become a teacher. All that to say, I believe I've had the experiences as an educator, uh, as an elected official for 11 years, and the superintendent's got to be able to work with the governor and the state legislature. And having served in the legislature now for four years, I believe I have unique experiences that can translate to helping to get more resources into our schools to help our kids and help all of our kids be successful. Yes, yeah, certainly your life story is compelling. A very difficult childhood, as you say, you could have gone a very different direction. Um, what beyond money, though? I mean, it helps to, to appropriate more funds, and we've uh, talked, a lot of people have talked about how we spend, you know, more per, far more per prisoner than we do per pupil. 
Um, what beyond money will it take to, to get the public schools back to where they need to be? Well, our teachers need better support and training. You know, we have a major teacher shortage. How can you close the ch- achievement gap if you start the school year and you don't have a teacher at the head of every class? And a teacher who's been well prepared for the needs of our kids. And so it's not just about money, but the way we use money does count. And so we've got to close this teacher shortage. And I mentioned that I got a bill that gives a scholarship to anyone who wants to teach in the tough areas, like hard to fill areas like special education or computer science or math. You know, one of the things I've learned living in the Bay Area is that a lot of districts can't keep teachers because they can't afford to live where they work. In the district where my kids go to school, Every year, we've had to replace 200 teachers for the last four years. And the reason they give for leaving is they cannot afford to live because of the high cost of living. And so that's how I came up with the teacher housing bill. And so I believe that the way we will help our kids is a combination of using dollars in a better way in terms of making sure we prioritize helping to close the teacher shortage, providing our teachers with great training, providing best practices that will help our kids. And we've got to move towards 21st century thinking. We can't keep teaching kids to memorize things. We can't keep teaching to the test. We should be promoting critical thinking, giving our kids a chance to do experiential learning, giving our our kids a chance to learn about civics and community engagement. I taught a civics course this year uh, with high school students in the juvenile camp. They helped me write a bill that helps kids who are in the criminal justice system have a better experience. And I brought them to the Capitol so they could introduce the bill to legislators with me. What better way to learn about government and politics when you're actually working on legislation with a sitting legislator who just happens to be your, your, your teacher? And so I, I believe that if we invest more in you know, critical thinking and training our kids and supporting more literacy... And then we've got to invest in more STEM education because there will be a million and a half jobs in technology in just a few years, and only half the jobs, uh, only half the applicants for those jobs, unless we change what we offer kids. And that means more computer science. I think 20% of the districts in our state offer computer science. So I'm um, really leading a campaign that's about providing more STEM, more computer science, better training for teachers, and engagement of students and parents in ways that I believe will result in better performance for all of our students. The current superintendent, Tom Tarlickson, used uh, local control education funding to raise teacher pay as opposed to spending on, on, on students uh, that it was designated for. Do you agree with that, and, and uh, how would you have handled that differently if so? You know, I, I think unequivocally as a superintendent, I would have to say that we would say use that funding to support the needs of those the program was intended for. That means students from disadvantaged backgrounds. That means English learners. And so I will always say that the funding has to be used to meet the needs of those populations. State Assemblyman Tony Thurmond, one of the four candidates for State Superintendent of Public Instruction. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Doug Sovereign. Next up, candidate Lily Plosky, a single mom and educator from Benicia. A lot of people don't know who you are. They know the the two better-known candidates. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Who is Lily Plosky? Uh, Well, Lily Plosky is an educator born and raised in California, and I have experience working in public education for about 20 years now. You have a really interesting family background, and I'm wondering um, how that has helped shape you as an educator and how you think that would help you 
help shape you as a, a superintendent? Sure. Um, well, my mother, she came from Mexico when she was 16. She didn't know English. She wasn't a citizen. She was, um, you know, a very traditional immigrant story in that she came to California in the hopes of a better life for her. She uh, married my father. My father was in the Air Force, and he was a teacher in Okinawa, Japan. He taught English, and he also went to law school and became a lawyer and he practiced workers' compensation law, where he mostly worked with people injured from the agricultural centers um, in Southern California. So many of his uh, clients were Spanish speakers, so he had a lot of uh, clients who were very low-income and poor. Um, my mother passed away when she was 37 years old, and um, I grew up with five kids, and my dad was the one who raised us, and because of some issues, we were low-income because he had a really hard time raising the family on his own after the divorce. And so we went from school to school to school. Uh, by the time I was in sixth grade, I had gone to, I think, four or five different schools. And we basically shuffled through the public education system. And um, me and my sisters, there's four girls and one boy. We all had, like, varying success in education. Um, but we managed to do well. And for me, when I got to community college, that really changed my life around, and I saw education as a beacon of hope. And I was excited because, for me, it made me see anybody could be successful as long as they don't give up and they really try hard and they find teachers who motivate them. So I basically dedicated myself to working in education uh, for my entire career, and it was because of the experience I had growing up in the public education system. Um, I have a sister who went to, well, three of us went to UC Berkeley. Um, one of us ended up going to Barnard. She is now a teacher. I have another sister who went on to get her PhD, and she's now a teacher. I have a brother who went into the Air Force for 20 years, and he's now retired. Um, and then I have another sister who works in the mortgage uh, industry. So we've all been able to be successful, and it was because of our public education, and that's what motivates me, is to help students who are low-income. Maybe their parents don't speak English. Maybe they're going from school to school to school, and I'm reaching out to those communities who really count on education to be the guiding light to their students and their families. That is a very... Uh typical, in a way, American immigrant story. I mean, my own father was a child of immigrants, and he saw education as, wait, this is my way out, and was the first kid uh -huh. in his family to go to college, and he became an educator and has been very successful. Um, so that, that that's common. But so what did your mom come here as an unaccompanied, what we now would call an unaccompanied minor then? Um, I would call her a teenage runaway. <laughs> she left her family she came home, but she came by herself. She was running away from her family. That's why she came to California. She's a she's a source of motivation for me because I think um, of what she had to endure and what she was able to accomplish. Um, and she was very active in the church. She was very active in the community. Um, she was really a source of motivation. She was a, a community. Um, activist, really. She would put together newsletters, and she would work with local other parents, other Spanish-speaking families, and help them get resources, help them understand how to, you know, help the children get registered for school and that sort of thing. And she she was just a dynamo. It's, it's too bad she passed away when she was only 37 years old, but I remember the newsletters that she would write, and she would help people um, navigate the resources in the community. So, so why are you running for superintendent? Why do you think you would be good at this job? 
in educational leadership, and I am fascinated by educational administration. I got my doctorate in educational leadership. I got my master's in student personnel administration. Uh, one of my goals has always been to oversee educational um, organizations and to work in the public sector. Um, when you work in public education, you're considered a civil servant. You know, every job I've ever had, we've signed that loyalty oath that we will be a civil servant and act in the best interest of our community. So I feel like I've been working with legislators, I've been working with community groups, parent groups, um, you know, teacher associations, collective bargaining groups, uh, legislators, um, community advocates, and working within our community up and down the state of California. I was born in Orange County. I've lived in Los Angeles County. I've lived in Alameda County, Contra Costa County, um, Solano County. Right now, um, I also lived in Merced County. So I've been able to experience all these different pockets of um, California statewide, and I feel like I have a really strong grasp on what's happening across the state of California. I went to a Cal State system, the UC system, the community college system. I also went through K through 12 through the public education system. And I think I have that strong statewide perspective of what's going on from the K-12 system and all the way up through the higher education system, the whole pipeline. So I feel like I bring a unique voice because I have been a teacher. I'm currently a teacher at Mills College. I teach high school students in the Upward Bound program. Um, you know, I did my dissertation on student success issues, especially focused on Latina students and low-income first-generation students. Um, you know, I've been through accreditation processes with schools that were right about to lose their accreditation and schools on warning and schools who have been on probation through accreditation. I feel like there's a vacuum of leadership in education, specifically in the state of California. We've seen a large number of people retiring. We've been talking about this, this wave of retirements happening ever since the year uh, 2000. We knew this was coming, and I've seen superintendents uh, changing chairs every two years, a new superintendent. And I feel like we just need a strong leader who understands education, understands the politics, understands the backgrounds of our teachers and administrators, and tie that into what's going on with higher education. And I have a unique background that nobody else right now currently in this race has. And it's really unfortunate because, you know, you need to be able to understand the history and the key players in education and understand how the Board of Education works together with the Commission on Teacher Credentialing and understand how that ties in with the K-12 system and the UC system and the Cal State system and the community college system. And, um, you know, I think you have a perspective as being a teacher and an administrator that you don't get when you're a politician or you don't get it when you're just focused on the charter school program. That is Lily Plosky, and now one more candidate in this race for state schools chief, Stephen Ireland. A lot of people know about Tony Thurman and Marshall Tuck, but they might not know Stephen Ireland. Who is Stephen okay. Ireland? Well, I'm a parent. Uh, I'm not your traditional candidate by any means. I don't have a Ph.D. in education or anything like that. But I'm a parent who's uh, of three teenagers. I've been through the mill on different schools, including um, private preschool, public, uh, traditional public schools, affiliated charters, uh, independent charters, and uh, I've volunteered. I've been a PTA president, a Cub Scout leader. Um, I uh, ran a church for a number of years. So I've been, I've been on a board. I've dealt with budgets, that sort of thing. So uh, as I say, I'm not your traditional candidate, but I, I just feel like um, the traditional candidates have not been doing what we need them to do. So what would you do differently from those traditional candidates if you were to win? Well, for one thing... Let me just back up a little bit because let me, let me tell you about Tony Thurman and Marshall Chuck. They each have almost identical fundraising profiles. Each of them has less than 1% of their money from small donations, which is defined as under $100. 
Each of them has about 8 or 9% of their money from outside the state of California, and the rest of it is all big money donations from either from one special interest or the other. Tony Thurman from the Teachers uh, Union and Marshall Tuck from Eli Broad and, uh, uh, you know, different charter school interests. So my, my problem with them is that they are beholden to those special interests. I'm not, and I'm talking about things that I don't believe they are. Um, I have three main issues that I'm focusing on. That's safety and security. You know, that's the most important thing right now. We, we had another school shooting today, and I don't think we're prepared to even protect our children in those instances. We know what to do in an earthquake. We have earthquake drills. Some schools have lockdown drills, but I think we really need to define the best practices for that and uh, then look at different ways we can keep our kids safe. I mean, that's just job number one. And and I'm not hearing that from the other candidates. Lily Plosky has said something about that, but, but the others really aren't. And then I'm concerned about school infrastructure. I'm a parent at North Hollywood High School. We have sinks literally pulled away from the wall, arsenic in the soil. We just have massive problems in our schools, and we're not taking care of that. And then finally, student well-being, which I define as anything from mental health to hunger to homelessness. California has 202,000 homeless students on any given night. 30,000 of them or so are literally without a roof, so they're sleeping on the street. And you don't hear a word about that from these candidates. The governor candidates are talking about it a little bit, but, uh, but the superintendent candidates are not. Let's talk about school safety. As you said, it's very much in the news. Again, there's a shooting every week, it appears. What would you do differently? How do you, do you harden the schools? Where do you stand on, on arming people at schools? Personally, I'm not in favor of guns in schools, and I think that'd be a terrible idea in LAUSD. However, I, I don't think that's something you do from the top down. I think that's a local, a local issue. Uh, what works in LAUSD may not work in Reading or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Barstow or other places. So I, I think that's a local issue. School districts need to decide how comfortable they are with that. Uh, but what I, what I would do right away is convene a, a, group, a working group to come up with best practices. So as I say, if, if there's an earthquake, my kids know what to do. They, they've done earthquake drills. They know what to do. That's not to say that you're always going to uh, – uh, that you're going to have a perfect record with that. But if kids know what they're supposed to do, at least they have a chance. And then I think we need to look at different technological solutions. Uh, everything from the simple locking door from the teacher's desk, you can have a button on the teacher's desk that locks the door. So if a call came over the intercom, hey, everybody lock your doors, just the push of a button would lock, lock down the school. Uh, other schools have come up with things where they have, um, uh, you know, bulletproof pods in their in their classrooms. I don't know that we go that far, but I, I just think we need to start asking these questions and figure out we what we as a state want to do to protect our children. What does it say about the state of education today in California that, you know, some schools have bulletproof pods, but a lot of schools don't even have basic art and music classes? Uh, and, and that's nuts. I mean, we are, depending on how you interpret the numbers, we're 46th, 41st, or 29th in the nation per pupil funding. In any case, we're in the bottom half of the, of the nation. California used to have the best schools in the world, and now they are online with some of the worst states in the union. And we need to fix that. I mean, that's just, that's just criminal, and it's time to take care of that. So you bring a parent's perspective, as you said, 
Uh, the other three people running are all parents as well. And they say, well, I've got a parent's perspective, but I bring something else to the party. In the case of Marshall Tuck, it's his background in business and with charter schools and his advocacy for change. With Tony Thurmond, it's his life experience and his you know, familiarity with Sacramento. With Lily Plosky, she comes from a teaching education background. So what else do you bring to the party besides just being a parent? Well, I mean, I, I, on purpose, I didn't say, you know, I'm a real estate broker or a television producer or anything like that. I just said I'm a parent. Because what I want to bring to this table is the parent's perspective. Yes, they're all parents, and I'm sure they're loving parents. But the fact is, if there's a decision that needs to be made, and on this hand, this is what's best for the children of California. But on this other hand, this is what's best for my teachers' union special interests or my charter school special interests, which one are they going to choose? Stephen Ireland, the last of California's four candidates for state superintendent of public instruction on your June 5th primary ballot. A reminder, you can hear our longer interviews with these candidates in their entirety on our website. That's kcbsradio.com slash campaign 2018 where you will find interviews with many other statewide candidates as well. Please don't forget to vote if you haven't already. And be sure to tune in on election night for all the latest returns. And also you can follow me on Twitter for all sorts of information and observations in between reports. I'm at Sovereign Nation. And I'm Doug Sovereign, KCBS. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.